I'm Laura Vinroot Poole. For 20 years, I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store. Capital has never really been about fashion. It's always been about people. What We Wore was created to share the meaningful journeys that inspire me. From the designers and friends I meet on the road to the men and women with whom I work each day. Everybody wants to know her Mara Hoffman is a New York-based designer with a spiritual presence and deep wisdom. We speak to her from Manhattan about her journey and the impressive effort she's making for positive change in the fashion industry. Good morning, Mara Hoffman from Manhattan, I think. I can hear in the background. Yes, good morning. How are you? Good. I have a bunch of notes in front of me, and you are one of the first podcast uh, guest I've had that I, I honestly don't think that we've met in, in person, Mara. I've been to your studio so many times and you've been to my store, but I think I've always been in market in Europe or something and, and just we've never crossed paths. It, is that, am I right? That, you're right. Yes, you're right. We've missed each other at each crossing. So here we are. But I want to say something about that, that I know that one of my favorite people in the world is one of your favorite people in the world, Pamela Love. Yes. And have you ever had a friend who said, oh my God, you're going to love this person. And then you met him and you didn't love him. <laughs> yes. Where they've been so off on like the character <laughs> study of you. Yes. Why? And how does that link into us? Pamela would never lead me wrong. I always loved you because Pamela loved you. <laughs> Yes, Pam's the best. Pam is the best. So you're in Manhattan now, but you're not from Manhattan. I think you're from... I'm from uh, Buffalo. Buffalo, which is which is a fashion hothouse that Adam Lippis is from. Yeah, <laughs> well, all, all the great ones are from Buffalo in, in the fashion biz. Tell, yeah, tell me I, what it was like growing up there. Well, Buffalo is actually um, the second largest city in New York State after after New York City. It has its share of culture and art. Um, my father played in the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. He's the classical cellist for 52 years. So I grew up in that world. Buffalo has great human beings. Yeah. And all of my friends that are from Buffalo that are still my friends in, in this part of my life are such special people. They're so down to earth. They're like the real deal people that you can call on for anything. And I loved growing up there because it also, I grew up in a really close-knit family and my mother has two siblings and between the three of them, they had nine daughters. So wow. my, I have nine, um, I have eight cousins. There's nine of us total and we're all very close in age and we grew up together, nine women. And so it really was so formative to kind of, I think, who I became in a way and my relationship to women and that, you know, the dedication of my life really in that pursuit of taking care of and creating for women. So I have great love for Buffalo. I bet there are also a lot of hand-me-downs. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> so probably a great love of clothes from all those cousins and aunts. Absolutely. Yeah. So I just have really like sweet, loving feelings 
around Buffalo. My family, my mother and my sister and my father are still there, but I came to New York City when I was 18. So I've spent the, the larger portion of my life here. So, you know, from 18 on, I've, I've been here. So it's like 25, something like 24 years. I'm 43 now. So I, I, my math is wrong, but something <laughs> like 24 years. Yeah. But you knew at eight years old that you wanted to be a fashion designer. I did. How did you know? And did you know what that meant or how to get there? I knew that I loved creating. I've always been like a hands-on creator, a maker. And I loved the idea that I could create something to be worn. And my mother was such a, a supporter from the very beginning. And so she would wear everything I would make for her and was such like a cheerleader for that direction. I think also coming from a, a father who is in, in the arts, I was given that early support, which was such a huge blessing, I think, because a lot of creative people don't necessarily get like the green light from their families. Yeah. In, the very, in the very beginning, it isn't seen as such a viable course because it, it's a really tough one to make it in. And I think most parents want to see their, their children succeed and have um, like not a, a really hard go at it. But I had that support very early on and I grew up dancing ballet for 18 years and I loved the form and I loved movement. And so putting kind of the love of creation together into movement on a woman's body was like a very early on kind of click for me. And did you know how to sew as a little person? I, I knew how to, I, like I knew how to messily hand sew you know, like the best that I could, like thread a needle. But I didn't learn to work on a machine until a little, until I was probably in my teens. And then how, how did you get to Parsons? Was that always a goal? Did you know that that's where you wanted to be? Well, at the time, so this is in the 90s, Parsons really was, in my mind, like the place to go. If you wanted to make it in fashion. I mean, there's other really fantastic schools, but for some reason, maybe just being from Buffalo and the idea like New York City is the next stop really out of Buffalo. And so when it's a natural progression for those that have sort of grown out of what they can be offered there, they would go to New York City. So Parsons being in New York really was like my gold star standard. And so I applied and spent my whole, I think, I don't know when you maybe junior or senior year working on that portfolio and it became my life yeah. applying for that school. And was it everything you thought it would be when you got there? I think so. I was really, I'm a fan of the school and a fan of my education that, that came out of that school. I'm, I'm sure it would be really different attending it now, especially within the sustainability lens and knowing yeah. that, you know, their courses are so, so much more evolved now and shifted towards the current landscape that we're actually living in. But when I was in school there, I graduated from Parsons in 99. It was very focused on discipline and creativity. So I learned how to stay really focused. I learned how to work really, really hard, which I then would find that I'd continue to do for the rest of my life. Um, and I, I learned how to push my creativity and to sort of I think the school fosters a bit of like a, a competitive nature as well. But yeah, I, I am really grateful for my education. 
right when you graduated, you started your, your own collection. I did. How did you have the confidence to do that? I mean, I was really making things since I was a little kid. So, uh, you know, through college, I used to set these crazy, almost like self competitions for myself where I would wake up in the morning. I was very into deconstruction, like a deconstructionist look, like taking things apart and resewing them, rebuilding them, putting something else together or modifying and altering the clothes that I had. I always have been a big vintage collector or thrift and would remake things. And so I used to set um, these little challenges for myself to wake up. I usually would be up all night anyways, just getting the homework done. But then I'd set a challenge to make my outfit when I would wake up for the day. And it would be crazy. That would be like a pair of tights, narrowed, stitched down the middle. And that would become the shirt. Like I'd cut a hole out of the crotch, stitch it together. That would be the shirt. And then like the skirt would be two pieces of fabric thrown together. And then a pair of, you know, Margiela tabby boots. So it was very much in the movement and aesthetic of the time. So I was making things all the time. And I was also making things for friends all the time and honing in on my aesthetic uh, outside of school projects. Like there's one thing to be creating your school projects and you're doing like sketching and thinking really wild. Okay, here's my most out there idea. And then you're in a a draping class and your learning technique, but I very early on was really inspired by kind of this hands-on, very raw sensibility of creation. And so I was able to hone in on an aesthetic through that. And my friends at the time in New York were, a lot of them were older than me and were already in the fashion industry and they were stylists working on um, different music videos and they would come to me to custom make pieces for them yeah. and and so I was already kind of honed in on on what my language was and how to create that and I brought well graduated from school and felt very um, disjointed actually from the fashion industry it, it, that that has a hundred percent been a theme um, through my 20 years of doing this is uh, disjointed and, and not necessarily in total alignment with the industry that I reside in. But that's a really positive thing because I will forever speak to discomfort being a catalyst for something greater and a, a better direction if you can listen to it and, and really kind of use discomfort to guide you in the right direction. So I had discomfort around the industry. I wasn't trying to go get a job at, at the time, Donna Karen or Calvin Klein, or um, like those were Isaac Mizrahi. Like, I don't know how old you are, but I know you'll know, hopefully you get the references. It was a very different time. And, and the positions that my classmates were going for were not what I resonated with. They're good jobs, but they just, I didn't see myself sitting in an office space on 7th Avenue sketching woven tops. I, I didn't connect to it. And I, I thought about going to school for costume design because I knew that I could get into like a more eccentric vision and maybe that would be a way to express it. But I was making a bunch of clothes and I was bringing them to my friend's store. She had a, a store and she would take my pieces on consignment. And as I was there one day dropping off a bag, I met Patricia Fields, who 
for the younger listeners, um, she was the visionary for all of the style and all of the clothes behind Sex in the City for the entire run of that show. Right. And so she was, is um, absolutely like an iconic figure in fashion. If you know, if, yeah. if you know who she is and what she did, uh, that was so informative and influential that show and how it informed style and for so many people. And she was the, the creative behind that and putting that together. And I had been a huge fan of her before that because she had these two very cool stores in New York City that were like the church for all club kids. Completely. She was like the mother of it. It was like the place for misfits and eccentrics and the people like really running like that New York City club scene. And that was a really big deal for many, 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 for decades in New York City. And like, that's where so much fashion came out of, like the style that was built in that space. So she housed that. Um, and so I knew her and I would go to her store all the time. And I was just like a, a huge fan of hers, even before Sex in the City. But when I met her at my friend's store, that's what she was working on was this new show with this with Sarah Jessica Parker and it sounded really cool and she bought the bag of clothes that I had on me from um, bringing to the store and she she bought it the whole bag and its contents for $250 and uh, then which was a big win for me and then the next day she had her buyers uh, for those stores call me and come and set up an appointment to visit me in my little studio apartment on 28th and Lex. I, I lived above a restaurant called Curry in a Hurry. <laughs> it was amazing and still is there and still is great food. And uh, I had a pile of clothes, like literally I had nowhere else to put them. So there was like a pile of clothes on the floor. They sat on my futon couch, the buyers, and I proceeded to show them what I had made and put everything on and they um, placed an order. And so they placed an order for $5,000, which was yeah. like That's huge. So yeah. From then on, it was a business. I mean, I... Was From that then on, it was a business. Yeah. And honestly, and it, it was like the, the jump off to have confidence that this could be a path. And it was all, an alternate path and, and one that I could actually, I could work for myself. I could make these pieces. I could lock myself into my apartment and just like work and make. And I had a savvy mother who um, soon after had me incorporated like understood that what I was doing should be protected and yeah. and legitimized. And so I had that support again, coming back to that, which is something I never take for granted is the parents that I came from. I mean, it's a really big thing, like what you come out of. I mean, I think that it's incredible people also that are able to evolve past like situations that weren't supportive. It takes even more strength and more tenacity and more creativity. Um, I That part was an easier part for this, this life run, was having parents that could see what I was doing and feel that they could um, like support it in the ways that they could. And the ways that they could support were through like understanding how to have you know my work protected. Um, and that was incredible. So yeah, I started my business and I would go store to store. I would make lists of um, the stores that I loved in New York City, the boutiques, and I'd go and I'd ask to see their buyer and I'd have my bag of clothes with me. <laughs> and usually the buyer was working behind the register 
And if they'd give me the time, I'd give them like my 15 minute sales pitch, throw out, you know, the things I'd made quickly, put them on. You know, I was a kid, I was like 22, 23 years old and I had nothing to lose. It was just like, let's go. And New York City was a different place and fashion was a different place. It was a very different time. Yeah, agreed. One of the things too, that I, I do think that you've always understood it was a business and understood the commerce part of it. But I also think that you have always shown to have such a deep spiritual connection to the world outside of fashion, which I think is unusual. And I don't know that I, I, I feel it in the clothes, but I also really feel it. I've always, I felt it in your showroom. I mean, I, I felt, I feel it through Pamela. Mm. Um, how, is that a hard thing to navigate through the world of fashion? First of all, I appreciate you feeling it. That's awesome. <laughs> um, it's important and not everybody, you know, catches it. Hard in the sense of feeling those, some polar aspects to it and feeling that discomfort at greater levels, but great in the sense that it could be a compass yeah. and a continual place to return to for direction and touching in and understanding what is in alignment for the right direction. And right direction isn't just for me, like right direction is asking for the work that I do to be in the highest and best interest of all, you know? Yeah. And I, when I'm out of that alignment, it's really uncomfortable and almost painful. So I feel really lucky to have that compass that is a relentless one and sometimes wish that it would like let me off the hook <laughs> a little bit more. Do you know what I mean? Where sometimes it's easier, like that idea of ignorance is bliss. It's, it's a horrible idea, but sometimes <laughs> you're like, oh, isn't it easier when you knew less or when you felt less where you could just kind of power through things. Yeah. But when you feel things on a, um, on a, another frequency and another level, you're, you're always beholden to that. And, and you know that it's much more painful when you're out of that flow. Yeah. So I'm really grateful to be able to combo those things. And it also just keeps me, it keeps my life like in a, in, in a more complete package than having to really separate parts of my life. Like they've always been one in a sense, like my work that I do is so, such a huge part of my existence, like my career and this company is huge. It isn't just like this other thing. Yeah. Like it's very much wrapped into my identity. And if that's the case, then it has to be representative of a, like a higher self and not just like an, uh, like a low level identity of, you know, oh, I'm a brand, da, 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 because I give too much of my energy to it for it to be that. Yeah. Speaking of meaningful moments and energy and spirituality, I know that the birth of your son afterwards you, you experienced a little bit of a reckoning in your life and in the fashion industry can you talk about that and sort of moving to be a more sustainable business and production model and sort of what how that happened and what that meant i was aware i was in awareness that i was part of a really harmful industry years before i made the shift and within my own company you know, I had friends like, speaking of which, like Pamela Love, who she had built her company. She built it later on, but she had built it with that ethos of sustainability front of mind before it was a conversation. Right. And so there were there were people around me who I, I knew existed that had been in that space, but 
when I started to really feel personal discomfort with my own contribution to it, I was already many years into my company. I was, when I made the shift, the company was 15 years old. Yeah, so right. I'd been feeling it for the years, a few years leading up to it when there was more awareness and more conversation around it. But I really hit my wall when we were 15 years in and my son was three uh -huh. and I was just in one of those big kind of hit the wall moments of change or die you yeah. know and I think we all experience those whether it's like through the work you're doing or through personal aspects that you hit these like unmovable parts and you can't stay in your habitual space anymore and it's really really uncomfortable because it can be terrifying to think like how do I change everything I yeah. don't know how to do this but I went to my director of production who was on maternity leave and I sat on her couch and I just kind of let it go and cried and was like, do we close the business? Because I can't let this be my legacy. I can't let this be what I leave to my kid. And what is he going to do with all the stuff we're making? What's he going to yeah. do with it? Like how, like for what, you know, to have like my name stitched in the back of a piece of clothing, mm -hmm. like where's the big win in that at the end of it all? we decided to start with the lowest hanging fruit. And it was, I mean, the first part was really analyzing and vetting our existing company and digging into all the parts. I know that Pamela visits you upstate. Did y'all always have your place upstate? No, 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 that's, that happened. Yeah, that happened pretty close to when all this happened. Because I was just wondering if it takes maybe the space of sort of, and also just the, the being outside of it for a minute to reflect on it and actually see it, but maybe not. You, you were I think it. I think that that's definitely a way to, touch base and to really kind of take assessment and inventory of your existence and like what you're contributing to is by slowing down and stepping out so that you have a moment to breathe and like see yeah. what you've created a hundred percent i didn't have that i've always really been in the grind yeah um, i'm a i am a worker bee deeply and so i've been someone i've like really worked my entire adult life very hard I didn't ever take that real break I had until this pandemic I hadn't left New York longer than maybe three weeks so wow. yeah this has been a real another big moment for it all but that moment I think it was the just the building up and the consciousness of it of when you have levels of awareness like they don't go away so yeah. once you see something, yeah, you don't unsee it. And I was gathering more and more information and like putting the parts together and realizing that this is not something I can really count on for the rest of my life. I can't be part of it unless it's something really different. And well, something well, that the industry talks about it over and over and over and nothing really happens. Yeah, I think that, you know, when you want something to change in your life, you've, you've got it understand that that comes with risk yeah and it comes with it's sacrifice it does and it comes with challenging yourself to be uncomfortable and I think most people fair enough spend their life avoiding discomfort 
um, for at any cost and that we've been taught to do that to like just find coziness find comfort go to the comfort go to the comfort but when really like we don't change and we don't become better and we don't evolve on any level when we stay comfortable we just don't do it so there's like an intoxication with comfort yeah but it really keeps us stagnant yeah so i'm not i'm all i'm 100 percent here for dipping into great you know runs of comfort i love comfort <laughs> i do oh my god but like i know that i can't hang out there for way too long um, or otherwise, like I'm probably not facing things that need facing to like evolve on the higher level. Do you think you know that from meditation and yoga or you just know- It's just experience. I know yeah. it from like coming face to face with yuck, you know, like <laughs> yeah. that's it where you're yeah. like, we're all, we all go through these waves of like the yuck and the yum in our lives. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, and then once you realize that yuck isn't terrifying, it's so but but it's so fertile it's like when the greatest shit happens is when you are forced to like get off of your routine and your habitual existence and you know in comparison to this time right now and what's happening so much has changed in our lives and in the business in these past seven months but I keep coming back to it that we were in a rut it was a beautiful a beautiful rut like one that like, you know, you a right you would choose to have uh, in comparison to like the suffering of the world, but, you know, still nonetheless a rut. And when you're kind of pushed out or you have enough strength and courage to choose the exit, that's when you see like there's so much more that can be done that will, you know, pay off in a very different way. Well, and I would think that that really called on your leadership because I I would imagine it was hard to get your team on board with that. It was hard to get some and it was easy to get others. I think that I can, I, I feel like I'm a great salesman when I need to be, <laughs> um, but because I feel really passionate about things. Yeah. And that that can be a magnetic quality in people where like when you are around someone who believes in something really deeply like it's easy to be um, enticed by that it's a very attractive quality when someone has conviction and when they have you know so in a leadership position like that's worked for me in a sense because it isn't also like making something up I really deeply believe it and I know that it's in service to like something that everyone is really longing for, even if they can't find the words for it. Like we're all in longing to be more connected and to be in flow and to feel more love. Like we're all, whether or not we say that or we really know that about ourselves, we are. It's like part of the human deal. I think when people see someone pursuing a path towards that, whether they know it or not, they're more often attracted to that. Like, let's see where this goes. Like, this can't be that bad. And if I don't like it, I'll jump out, you know? So, yeah. So, and I had people in the very beginning of this transformation, it'll be six years now in January, I had people jump ship a hundred percent that were just like, eh, you know, this is uh, like, this is crazy. Our buyers aren't interested in this. Nobody's interested in this. I had accounts that weren't interested in it. I, my company went through a a major contraction during that time. And 
it was a conscious one. It was one that I was like, understanding was necessary because I knew not everybody was going to go with this shift. And also at that time, we made a really big aesthetic shift. Yeah. So like we moved out of a whole brand language and moved into a new one. And so not only was it moving towards sustainability, the price point changed, the, the fabrics changed, the silhouettes changed. It it had to match where I was as a human. Like I, yeah. that's the thing. I think creatives like sort of get locked down into these certain categories because they're known for something. Yeah. But then you change as a person and that thing doesn't like that sweater doesn't fit anymore. Like I don't want to, I'm not trying to wear the things I, you know, I was wearing at 25 years old. Yeah, exactly. One of the things that I've also always found unique about you is that you haven't taken on any outside capital or investors. Was that something that was important to you from the beginning? I don't even know if I like, like it, there was no mission statement with that, you know, it wasn't like, this is how I'm going to run this and I'm never going to take that. And I think it just sort of worked out that way. I've always loved freedom. Yeah. I've always loved being able to be nimble. I've always loved having a company that could change, you know, like being able to change is huge. And yeah. I think uh, sometimes in those dynamics and relationships, like I've watched friends and people struggle with them because they haven't been able to like be who they are within it. And they feel more of like a prisoner in their own companies than they do just feeling supported to be like the creative that they are. And at the end of the day, I'm a creative. I run a business, but I'm a creative. So I've always tried to find every, and I've never really been afraid of being extraordinarily scrappy too. <laughs> I've, I've always been that. Like I never had tons of money to do anything. So it's always been part of the creative process. I mean, look, that's not to say at this point, like at any point I wouldn't entertain or engage that conversation. And I've always also been open to the right thing coming in at the right time. Um, and that there, everything is about timing. I'm really grateful that I'm at the place I am right now and I'm not in like beholden to someone else's sort of vision of something because if I had done that, I'm afraid I wouldn't have been able to do the very necessary things that I needed to do. And those came with extreme contractions. Again, it came yeah. with things that people who had been put, if they had put money in, they would have been like, absolutely not. I know, exactly, exactly. We are not doing this. <laughs> not a good plan. <laughs> yeah, not a good plan. So I wouldn't be here now, you know? I mean, maybe yeah. I would have, but I had never met the person that I feel like would have like taken like this wild ride. <laughs> So you've just hit 20 years in business um, during the pandemic. And I loved reading the letter that you wrote to followers about it. And was that your first opportunity really to share kind of what you had started five years ago? It's interesting. Like we didn't talk about it in the very beginning of it. It took us years to even begin to communicate it because ultimately like we never wanted to lead with that. And it was also, it's still to this day, feels like such a work in progress. And anybody that is in this space or in the quote unquote sustainability space knows that like, there's just an endless amount of work to be done in it. And there's still so many broken parts to it and nothing is a perfect system. And the reality is, is that if you're still at any level manufacturing new clothes, you're ultimately, part of a, a problem yeah, you can right. do it with so much greater intention so many better practices but there's 
anybody who's like real deal in this is constantly in conflict right. with it. Okay, so like that's the thing of it. So really preaching on that or preaching like sustainability or green or any of it is like not the approach because nobody's got it figured out really. You can talk about the work you're doing and the process you're doing, but we kind of kept it close. And then as people started to discover it on their own, we were asked to communicate it. And we've always just communicated it in a very like, okay, this is where we are. That's it. This is it. That like, like, that's it. Like I can tell you the work we've done and where we are, but by no means are we like, we got it. Yay. We're the most, we're the most anything. Cause we're just not, you know, nobody is the most anything, but people were really drawn to the work we were doing kind of organically. So we have, you know, for the past few years, we are on a ton of panels. We speak a lot to our work. We speak a lot to like the you know, the fiber aspect, the workforce aspect, the social impact aspect, you know, the human centric part of this work and sustainability. We do, we're a very communicative company along those lines, but the letter was more about, I think, letting people know the reality of this moment in time, like what it is to be a brand that has done this work and who has made an oath, like like the beginning of our conversation of when you have an, a compass that's instilled, you can't not like follow it. And yeah. so I think it was just updating people on like where that compass was leading us now and, and what the alignment looked like from the oaths that have been made in these past six years. Like, what does that translate into right now in this period of time when the world is in such disarray and there are so many people struggling and the planet is absolutely in continual communication of its own discomfort back to us. And so that's really what the letter was about. Like, where do we go from here? What actions do we as a brand take? What did we decide to do? And also just lifting the veil a little bit on the reality of what it is to be an independent brand yeah. during this time. Because I think we've all been taught to like smile and say everything's <laughs> cute. Yeah. And like business as usual, no problem, you know, buy from us. It's all good. But like, that's just not real. What's been the change that's been most painful for you in this? Letting employees go. Like yeah. that was really heartbreaking. I love my team very deeply. And the people that have shown up for this mission, I hold them with like real love and reverence and their contribution to what we do on a creative level and an intellect level like it they're part of this so when early on in you know in a few weeks and after lockdown towards the end of March when we had to start making those calls to let people go people that had been with me for years yeah. that had contributed on such meaningful levels that part was just heartbreaking I'm not afraid of contractions I am really here for them I'm here for like the the shake it up get off your hamster wheel break it to pieces throw it out the window and rebuild from there I get thrilled with that kind of energy so that part, it's been really hard and scary, but like, I'm here for it. I'm here for a little chaos, but the human part of this and the livelihoods and the people like along our supply chain and within our direct company that could feel this impact. Like I, I will never feel like 
okay about. It's it, it was really hard. It still is. People are still struggling yeah. from this on that level deeply, yeah. and they will be. They will be feeling this. Like we're not out of it. Like this is the thing. And I think that like in fashion we're still going to feel the currents of this. Like we haven't even really fully hit it yet. I think what this is going to do as an industry. What are your biggest takeaways from 2020? I don't know. Like if there was ever a time to just learn how to be okay with discomfort, this is the masterclass. And the more we push against it and like just live for being only comfortable, the more painful it's all going to be. So like, I've been really interested in like Pema Chodron, like she's amazing or like Buddhist philosophies in the sense that it feels extreme, but this idea of that like life is suffering, period. Like the statement one, life is suffering. <laughs> and then everything, but, but the intention of that is this, this idea that like, okay, that's a fact. But life is also joyous. Life is beautiful. Life is filled with love, all these other things. But it is a mixed bag. And it can't always be one thing or the other. But if we can embrace all of the parts, the dark and the light, then like our go at this can feel so much better and can be so much more graceful. And this has been a masterclass. 2020 is, a, is that. It's like the greatest teachings coming down to say, how are you really when shit hits the fan? Because that says so much about the human being, you know, how you're living. We asked all of our guests what they wore to the prom. Do you remember? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> I wore a Betsy Johnson. I drove to Toronto because really you couldn't buy good clothes in Buffalo so much. So we would, our closest city was Toronto. And it was very, you know, it had like a very European vibe to it. You could buy Betsy Johnson. You know what I mean? You could yeah. go and buy designer things. Yeah. So my prom, I, 95. Um, so it was a corset, like a black satin corseted top black with with boning full boning and then it puffed out into this hot pink tutu oh my crinoline God. oh yeah i went for that it is layers awesome. was it short or and it, like super short <laughs> like it flared out like super short and then i made i was very like anarch like kind of rebellious anarchist like my boyfriend was all my friends were skateboarders like i was all, i went to a private girls school but was always like constantly pushing the limits always more interested in like fringe you know than like being in kind of status quo always so i made a crazy garter belt like the thing that goes on your thigh like of all these wild feathers and googly eyes and like glued this like ridiculous like bird thing together that was my thigh um my that yes. is definitely a first. I have not had a skater <laughs> garter. And then other accessories, your shoes and your I, hair. My hair was like yeah, super long. It's always been long, but like um, <laughs> twisted into these, half of it was twisted into these two wild like alien knots on the top of my head. <laughs> and I'm, I can't remember, but I think I had things hanging from them. And then down in the back, very wild makeup. And I don't, maybe a black choker around my neck because that was kind of the thing, but I can't remember. Platform, very high heeled platform, but I'm sure the shoes were vintage because yeah. I was already very tapped into like shopping all vintage in high school. 
what in the world did your date wear? He definitely could not have. Mattered. No, he wasn't like some, he wasn't like a goofy tuxedo, but he was like a really tall kind of funny skateboarder dude. So him in a tuxedo was, was enough of a contrast to make it funny. <laughs> Mara, thank you so much for talking to me today. I, I really love getting to know you more and can't wait to see you in person. Oh, I feel the same. Thank you for thinking of me for this. And I wish you guys just all the continued success. You're doing such a beautiful thing. And I loved when I got to visit and I really look forward to that time again to come. And the people that I met during that day, the women were just so genuinely kind and responsive and receptive to me. And I just appreciated it. And I got to work with so many interesting, beautiful women. And I can't wait to do that again one day. And thank you for doing what you're doing and for supporting the art and the designers that you do. And it's a really important thing. So thank you. Thank you, Mara. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.